Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sen, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to their elders of the past, those of the present, and the elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello, I'm Charlie Mason, Local Project Officer at the Peregrine Centre, and this is a Rural Mental Health Podcast. I'm talking today to clinical psychologist Monique Mitchelson and clinical neuropsychologist Dr Michelle Livock on the subject of working with neurodivergent clients. I'm going to start by just acknowledging the traditional lands that I am on today, and that is the lands of the Darug and the Gundagara people. I want to start by acknowledging those traditional lands and paying my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you very much for both of you for being on the podcast today. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it's really lovely to have you here and to be talking to you myself. No worries, it's lovely to be here. So obviously our podcast focuses on information that is really helpful to get out there for rural and remote mental health practitioners. That can be clinicians at all different levels from peer support workers through to mental health support workers, also psychologists, psychiatrists and GPs as well. So tell us, what is neurodivergence and how is this different from neurodiversity? The terms are used interchangeably by many trying to get their head around the language So clarification around these concepts seems like a really great place to start. And leading on from that, that question I have for you is individuals with autism or autistic individuals and ADHDer or individual with ADHD, which is the preferred language and why is this important? Well, first, I I might backtrack a little bit and just have a chat about the language around neurodivergence versus neurodiversity. So... Basically, neurodiversity applies to the whole population because we all have a diverse brain. If you think of an ecosystem, there are many different types of plants, animals, organisms that form that ecosystem. And the term neurodiversity actually comes from the concept of biodiversity, that we are all different, but we all have a role to play in the whole ecosystem. So, yeah, neurodiversity applies to people who have the majority brain type. So, we would refer to them as neurotypical people and then people who fall within, um, I guess, what we call a neuro-minority. So, that might be people who are autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, dysgraphic, and a few others. And we would refer to those people as neurodivergent or a neuro-minority. So when we're talking about the whole population, we use the word neurodiversity. When we're talking about autistic and ADHD individuals, dyslexic individuals, we use the term neurodivergent and neurodivergence. And then coming to your second question around the language uh, around autism and ADHD, basically there's a concept called uh, person-first language. Um, There has been a bit of a debate about the use of language within the autistic and ADHD community. And in the past 10 or 20 years um, within the autistic community, there has been a shift towards using identity-first language. So, people who are autistic prefer to 
refer to themselves as I'm an autistic person because their autism forms a big part of their identity and they don't want to be labelled with having autism like a disease or a condition because it's not actually, you know, a physical disease. It forms a whole part of their identity of who they are and Part of that preference is to try and reduce the stigma around using the term autism. Um, So as clinicians in our reports and how we refer to clients, we might use the language, okay, so-and-so has autism or they have autism spectrum disorder. The preference from the autistic community at the moment, the majority, is to actually use the language of so-and-so is autistic or so-and-so is an autistic individual. But as clinicians, I think it's always important for us to actually ask our clients how would they prefer to be referred to, you know, around the labels that we use for them and how do they prefer to be referred to in the reports that we write to doctors and GPs and, and, you know, agencies as well. So I always believe in, in handing, you know, empowerment to the client and letting them have that choice and control over like what language they want to use. But it's good to actually explain to the client like what what is the preference at the moment in the autistic community. And that has spread to the ADHD community in terms of referring to themselves as we are ADHDers versus a person with ADHD. Amazing. I think that person first language preference is really important for practitioners to be aware of. So following on, And you did cover this already a little bit in your answer. I just wanted to ask about the language around the word disorder. Is that a word that we should be using as a default term when we're talking about people who are autistic or ADHDers? Really good question. And I think this really kind of articulates the move from the previous kind of very medicalized model for these types of things into this now neurodiversity model. So just a little history lesson, um, and and I will get to your question in a second, Um, but I think, you know, it's important to understand where some of these terms have come from. Psychology as a profession um, or as a practice really had to almost fight for its legitimacy in, you know, the early 1900s. And to do that, it was kind of saying, we're just like you guys. We're a medical profession too. We have disorders and diseases and pathologies and all of these things just like the medical world. So a lot of things that have come out of, you know, psychological research have just naturally fallen into this medicalized model where if something is different to the norm, then it's a disorder or a pathology. Now, that makes a lot of sense when it comes to medical stuff, right? Like a broken leg, that's different to the norm and that's a problem. (laughs) Um, Really high blood pressure, that's a problem that needs to be fixed or sorted out. Whereas when we're talking about the human mind, and as Monique said, you know, these range of differences that are very natural, evolutionarily adaptive way of being as a species, um, it actually doesn't really make sense to say that, you know, this is a disorder versus this isn't. So, We don't really refer to things like autism or ADHD as disorders anymore, even though the actual official label for both of these things, autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, still has that word in it. And the reason for that is, you know, clinical research and practice takes a little while to kind of catch up with where everything sort of stands, you know, at a practice level. 
but definitely with clients and when we're kind of chatting about things like autism and ADHD, um, I often actually explicitly say, look, it still has this word disorder in it. This is the reason for that. Um, But I have no doubt that we're going to get to a point where that word will be dropped. The other thing just to note there, though, and I think this is where a lot of confusion comes around, you know, the distinction between what's a disorder versus what's, you know, just a natural part of, you know, how the brain is set up, um, is that even though autism and ADHD aren't disorders in the sense that they're not these defects or deficits that people have, they can still be a disability. And that's really confusing to a lot of people for obvious reasons. Um, But when we think about the word disability, it really just means what's your ability to access, you know, certain things in your work, in your school, in your community. And the opposite of being disabled is being enabled, which a lovely guest on uh, season three of our podcast actually articulated to us. So when we're thinking about things like neurodivergence, so autism and ADHD, even though it's not a disorder, being autistic, being an ADHD act can be disabling in certain situations. So a really good example of that is for autistic individuals, often they find that job interviews are a very disabling situation because they really require you to think on the spot, come up with flexible answers, retrieve information about past experiences. And we know that one of the ways that the autistic brain works is it's very detail-orientated, it's very methodical, and it can be difficult to quickly retrieve all of that information, even though it's there and with enough time to prepare, they could do it, just not in that situation. The other element of job interviews you know, they highly rely on that social back and forth, social fluidity, which autistic individuals can find difficult in that situation. So, a job interview would be a situation where an autistic person needs accommodations in order to enable them to access that experience or, you know, that job interview. So, if that kind of makes sense, I hope, you know, that it's not a deficit or a disorder, but it's still disabling in certain situations. That's wonderful. I think that's a great clarification between disorder and disability. So thank you for that. So my next question is, aimed at those clinicians in rural and remote areas who may not have had a lot of experience working with neurodivergent individuals and may have just come across the idea from the media. The media often portrays two images of autistic individuals, one as individuals who are autistic and have a comorbid, moderate to severe intellectual disability, or one as autistic people as gifted savants. What is the reality of presentation and diversity of autistic individuals? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I think it's probably not just clinicians who maybe haven't had a lot of educational or or knowledge on this particular topic. I think that's just a really commonly held belief in the population, right? And it's actually not very accurate, as is most, you know, just pop culture um, beliefs about how certain things present. So we know that neurodivergence actually has nothing to do with intelligence, right? Just like neurotypical people can run the spectrum of, you know, intellectually impaired to intellectually gifted, so too can neurodivergent people, right? The issue is that it's just a little bit harder to, you know, hide your difference if you have an intellectual impairment or if you have a really unusual and extreme ability or skill in a certain area. So, 
you know, if we think back to this idea of the medical model and where uh, autism and ADHD and things like that kind of were first emerged, if you were able to kind of hide and sort of pretend, so to speak, that you were normal, then you would, right? But it's these people who were not able to hide that, that were picked up and recognised. So, you know, when it comes to savant abilities as well, it's really interesting. I, you know, I do a lot of um, cognitive testing. That's part of my role in, in what I do professionally. And when we kind of see a neurotypical person come for neuropsychological testing or cognitive testing, what we usually see is quite an even distribution of skills and abilities in, you know, the way that their cognitive profile is set up. So, what I mean by that is if you've got a neurotypical person who, um, say, has high average intelligence overall, most of their other skills and abilities will be clustered around that. They'll have some areas of relative strength and some areas of relative weakness. Whereas what we often see for neurodivergent individuals is this really kind of discrepant cognitive profile where there are some things that are really strong and other things that are comparatively much weaker. And often it's to a point where we're not actually able to determine an overall IQ score, so to speak, because there's so much difference. And the whole savant ability idea is really just an extreme version of that, where someone has extreme skill and ability in a certain area and maybe less skill and ability in other areas. So, you know, there's a couple of examples of this in pop culture. We often have the idea of the eccentric genius, right, which was an available um, space for men to occupy historically, but not women right? The person who is really talented at science, but uh, really struggles with social processing or executive function skills. Yeah. I think with that too, uh, with some of the the stats on that, just, just speaking to some of the perceptions that people have, the research actually says that uh, around 20 to 30% of people who are autistic also have a comorbid intellectual disability. So it really isn't the the majority of the presentations, but those may be the people who get picked up and diagnosed. And those may be the people who are getting referred to services, particularly disability support services. And with the savant population, the current research says around 10 to 37% of people who are autistic may have savant abilities. So again, it's not really the majority of people who are on the autism spectrum, but like what Michelle was saying, they're the people who may stand out and be more recognized. Whereas a lot of the population that Michelle and I work with are the people who are more have the ability to mask their autism or ADHD and thus don't get diagnosed or recognized until later on in life as the demands in life increase, such as having children or running a business or going to university or further study, that sort of thing. Wonderful. Thank you. I think that is really important, especially for clinicians who are possibly working with adults who may not have yet been diagnosed, yet to be aware that there are people who have been masking their whole life and may not come across as autistic. So thank you for that really thorough explanation. My next question is, in your opinion, what is the role of the label of autism or ADHD? Is it a helpful or unhelpful label? Is it just for getting NDIS support? With this, I would be putting on my my clinician hat here and really thinking about what is going to be helpful for the client. 
So I really believe in being client-centered, client-focused, and actually explaining and asking and going through with the client, hey, like, do you want an official diagnosis? What are the the pros and cons to that? What what do you feel like you would get out of this? And actually explaining things to them um, and getting their opinion on that. Because for some people, getting a diagnosis is really helpful because say for you know, the first 30 or 40 or 50 years of their life, they've been going through life going, oh, I just have depression or anxiety. Or like I've had a client tell me when I've done an uh, an autism assessment for them, oh, I thought you were just going to tell me that I was really crap at adulting and being a functioning adult when actually, no, you're autistic and actually you've done a really good job of trying to cope and get through life up until this point. So getting the correct Uh, label for what's actually going on underneath all of these presenting symptoms like anxiety, depression, not being able to maintain employment or dropping out of study or having difficulty in relationships. That's really key because it's only then that you can get the correct information and supports to make sense of your brain. And I find for a lot of people, um, particularly the, the older women that get diagnosed, they find that it actually helps lift a lot of the self-judgment and criticism that they've had um, their whole lives and that feeling of failure and low self-worth for both ADHDers and autistic people of why haven't I been able to just do life like other people have? Why are things so hard? Why do I get so drained and why can't I cope with things like other people can? So I think from that perspective, it's really, really helpful. Um, it's not just about getting funding and getting support, but yes, getting officially diagnosed, it can open that access to getting more supports. And I think part of moving away from the, the medical model to a more affirming model is actually recognizing that you can't cure or fix autism or ADHD. It's a neurodevelopmental condition that's going to be present over the whole person's lifetime. And that means that the person actually needs support, extra support, more support than someone else over their whole lifetime. The support just shouldn't stop at school. It might mean that they need NDIS support or they might need income support because maybe they're not able to work full-time potentially without burning out. So, so yeah, I think getting a label can be helpful. There are some people who getting a label is really difficult for them and they see it as a negative thing. And that might be because they've had negative experiences at school or growing up, or they may have been given negative messages from society about what does it mean to be labeled autistic or ADHD? That's a bad thing. That must mean that um, I'm a freak or that must mean that there's something wrong with me. So it's not so much about the label. It's actually more the stigma and the meaning around the label that's problematic for a lot of people and that they need to kind of work through that in therapy. Yeah, I totally agree. I um, I think, you know, for me, the utility of going through a diagnostic process or, you know, knowing or getting the label, so to speak, is really about giving you the map to your brain. And one of the reasons that I love working in this space so much is because I think, you know, most people who work in mental health, are, we're storytellers. And it sounds like a bit of a weird thing to say, but I love the power of a story because we all have stories about ourselves. Who am I? How do I fit in the world? What does this mean versus what does this not mean? 
And the beauty of actually getting an accurate diagnosis is you're changing the story for people. As Monique said, you know, it's often this really deeply internalized belief that all of these issues that I've had in my life is just because there's actually something non-functional about me or something defective about me. When really, when you get the right map, you kind of realize, oh, this is why all of these things haven't been working. I've been trying to navigate London with a map of Paris, right? None of the landmarks were the same. And so I kept running into walls and, you know, falling down potholes because it wasn't marked on my map, right? I had the wrong map. So, you know, I think that having a label is such a really powerful um, way of changing the story for people. But, you know, exactly as Monique said, it's really important to be client focused too and really assess with the client, is this actually something that you want? But one thing, one sort of piece of advice that I would absolutely give to any professional working in this space is that I think sometimes as professionals, we can think, oh, I really think this thing is going on for this person. And it might be autism or ADHD. It could be something else, right? But we might feel a little bit anxious about flagging that with them because we might think, oh, I don't want to give them this really bad news. I don't want to upset them. But the really important thing to know there is if you really believe that, you know, this might be going on for someone and if you, you know, have evidence to support that or you, you know, you strongly feel that this could be the case, flag it with them. Absolutely. They might have a negative reaction then and there, but it's still really important to give them the information. Excellent. Thank you. I love that you both touched on the issue of stigma when going into the diagnostic process or suspecting that someone you're working with may be neurodivergent. I do love that you really fleshed out the details on going into that process with a neuroaffirming framework as well. So thank you so much. I've just got another question now that is around, there is perhaps a perception of autism and ADHD in particular as only occurring in males. How accurate is this perception? Great question. Short answer, not very. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I'm just kind of putting on my feminist hat here that actually, to be real, I never take off. But um, as with, you know, most kind of medical research, there's a really strong historical bias towards men. And, um, you know, the belief that autism and ADHD occurs primarily in boys and men is false, and that's a product of that bias. Uh, I'd really actually recommend any kind of clinician or practitioner reading Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. It's absolutely fantastic book. It's basically about data bias in research. So medical research, but also other research as well. And it really just highlights how, you know, going back to this idea of stories, how the storytellers get to create the story. And historically, the storytellers have been, you know, the people in positions of power and privilege. And so the story around neurodivergence or around autism and ADHD has been these are male things that only men and boys experience. So um, now that we kind of know that that's not really the case, what we're actually finding is a massive upswing in diagnostic rates for women and girls for both autism and ADHD. We're kind of correcting that bias there. And the really important thing to keep in mind when we're kind of unpacking, well, why is this the case? Is that the same kind of experience or trait can actually manifest differently for different people. 
So for instance, two people could be experiencing anxiety. One person is manifesting that by what we call externalizing. So they might be uh, really demonstrating that. They might be being crazy or hyperactive or lashing out or aggressive or like lots of reassurance seeking. Another person might internalize that anxiety by just thinking, okay, well, I'm just never going to do anything wrong and I'm just going to be perfect and then nothing will go wrong and that's how I'll make sure that nothing bad ever happens, right? Same internal experience, two totally different external manifestations. And so when we're thinking about, you know, if someone's meeting criteria or demonstrating, you know, an autistic neurotype or an ADHD neurotype, We actually want to go beyond the behavior, beyond what we can externally see and dig down deeper into what's actually the internal experience, what's driving some of these behaviors or things that are going on. So, you know, for ADHD, for instance, we know that girls are much more likely to be diagnosed with the inattentive type ADHD. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, the different forms of ADHD later on today. But inattentive type ADHD is tend to be, particularly in a school system, less um, obviously struggling because they're sort of the ones that are just sitting quietly at the back, daydreaming in their own world, whereas the more kind of hyperactive impulsive ADHD is tend to be the ones that are, you know, that's more obvious. So they're sort of picked up and, you know, we know that boys tend to be um, more likely to be diagnosed with that more hyperactive impulsive type. Similarly, you know, with autism, girls on the spectrum also have really strong fixated interests, the same as boys on the spectrum do. Whereas, and, and, you know, these are generalizations, just to caveat this, but, you know, generally speaking, men and boys on the spectrum tend to be more interested in how things work as a really broad category. Whereas girls on the spectrum tend to be more interested in psychology, social justice, spirituality, things that are much more at that macro empathy, right? And a really good example of that is Greta Thunberg. Her special interest is, you know, environment, climate change, right? So when we're kind of understanding that these things can manifest differently, we can really get a little bit of a better picture there. And, you know, similarly, we might see girls on the spectrum in their primary school years be interested in things that are quote unquote typical, right? Like bands or friendships or things like that. But it's the intensity and the form of those interests that are different. So, you know, really just expanding our view on all the different ways those same internal traits can actually manifest. And we start to see that actually neurodivergence is not specialized to boys and men. Excellent. Thank you. That was a really thorough discussion. And I always enjoy your feminist hat being on. (laughs) I'm Um, glad. I'm glad. (laughs) And I think, you know, across mental health and neurodivergence, there has been a long history of um, females not being diagnosed or being diagnosed quite late in the piece. So it is really important to touch on that. If I had a dollar for every time someone came and said to me, like as a female client, oh, someone said to me, but you can't be autistic because you're not like my nephew who's five years old and likes trains, I'd be rich. 
I think that's a, a very common comment that is made. And another one that I have personally heard myself when I was younger and during life was that I couldn't possibly have ADHD because all of my teachers at school said I was a pleasure to teach. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Ab- ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And look, you know, I, I assess lots of adult women. Um, and part of that process, if if this is an available option, is I like to look through school report cards. And, you know, usually you can see a little kind of marker there throughout, but over and over and over again, you know, so-and-so is a delight to have in the class. So-and-so is so dedicated, (laughs) you know, and then you actually talk to the woman about, okay, well, what was grade six like for you? And they're like, oh my God, I was so stressed. (laughs) It was a nightmare. (laughs) Yes. And I think that's very relatable for a lot of neurodivergent women. It does come back into that idea of masking and those cultural expectations about how we're taught to behave and recognising those quite early on. Excellent. As you said, we're going to speak about ADHD. So my next question is, most people commonly associate ADHD with the idea of the impulsive hyperactive presentation. What are the different types of ADHD, which you've already touched upon briefly, and how common are their presentations? So uh, with ADHD, we know ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and there are three subtypes. So there is the inattentive subtype, the hyperactive subtype, and the combined subtype. So within the um, inattentive subtype, those more symptoms around having difficulty maintaining attention and concentration on tasks. So being easily distracted by external stimulus. And a good thing to mention is for a lot of uh, women and also people who don't present as maybe heterosexual men, so maybe members of like the LGBTIQ plus population, It will often present as racing thoughts and being really easily distracted by your own thinking, not just external noises and distractions. Basically, the the inattentive subtype is having a lot of difficulty maintaining attention and concentration, having difficulty starting and completing tasks. So it's really to do with um, those elements of executive functioning. The hyperactive subtype is more motor restlessness and it can be physical or external hyperactivity such as fidgeting, feeling restless, having difficulty sitting still. Um, But for a lot of like women and adults, often they are able to mask. So to sit still in a classroom or maybe a lecture or a workplace, but the fidgeting will be very not noticeable. So people will um, do things like squeezing their muscles in their legs because that's not going to attract the attention of the teacher or the co-workers to comment on their hyperactivity, but they're still fidgeting. So it's being aware of things like that and like twirling the hair and just stuff that's more socially acceptable. Um, But yeah, it's also being aware that people can have the internalized hyperactivity. So a presentation of that can actually be anxiety and the racing thoughts that people have. And then we have the the combined type. So it is quite rare to just have the hyperactive type of ADHD. Most people will more have the inattentive type or the combined type of ADHD. Is there anything you want to add there, Michelle? Yeah, yeah, I'll just jump in. When we think about 
ADHD as a label, as we said a few times, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, such a mouthful. It's actually really misnamed. You know, we've talked about the disorder part not really being accurate, but also the idea of an attention deficit is not really accurate either. So we know actually that ADHD is really about difficulty with self-regulation and executive functioning. So self-regulation just being a fancy way of saying self-control, right? Being able to control our internal experiences. So when we think about the different kind of main subtypes, the inattentive subtype and then the hyperactive impulsive subtype, those um, really refer to where someone might have difficulty regulating or controlling their internal experience. With the inattentive subtype, uh, this is more what we call cognitive dysregulation. So difficulty regulating, controlling, organizing your internal thought processes, right? And what's kind of going on in your mind. So we tend to have this quite chaotic um, sort of messy bench situation, you know, in the mind. And that can make certain things a lot trickier. It can make staying on track a lot trickier. It can make ignoring distractions trickier, both internal and external, as Monique said. But it's also where we get that amazing idea generation skills, the connectivity between, you know, seemingly to other people, unrelated thoughts, but to an ADHD, you know, this makes perfect sense. Of course, these things go together. Um, (laughs) So, you know, it's that double-edged sword, right? Everything has strengths and everything has weaknesses. No kind of personality trait or cognitive trait is inherently good or bad. It's just, you know, what's the situation that it's in? What are the benefits versus what are the costs? So, for inattentive type ADHD is we get that real kind of cognitive dysregulation. And for our hyperactive impulsive type ADHD is it's more the behavioral and emotional dysregulation. So difficulty uh, regulating or controlling impulses, behavior, as Monique said, that, that, you know, that kind of um, hyperactive or hypermotor activity comes under that. And In the inattentive hyperactive type, we also tend to get more of that uh, emotional dysregulation. So we can see those kind of really strong, um, really strongly felt emotions. And obviously for people with the combined type, We've got both of those, and that's the most common type. And, you know, as Monique said as well, when we get to adulthood, we often see a decrease in the hyperactive impulsive uh, traits or symptoms. And part of that is masking, absolutely. You know, part of that is people learning through their life, okay, how can I actually make some of these things more, you know, quote unquote, socially acceptable? Um, But part of that also is just maturity and, you know, brain growth and executive function development and and all of that. So if we think about impulsivity, lots of combined type ADHDers have to learn throughout their life, you know, how do I actually better regulate my choices and my actions? And, you know, one thing that I love to say to clients is that every single person on the planet has a mountain to climb right? We all have our own internal landscape, our own things that are our particular sets of strengths versus our particular areas of difficulty. And going back to this analogy of, you know, having a diagnosis or having a label as giving you the map um, for ADHD is a lot of, you know, the kind of mountains that they have to climb are around, okay, how can I develop some skills and strategies to better regulate 
you know, some of that, particularly the behavioural stuff, because I find that's often what, you know, I work with kids a lot. That's what gets kids into trouble (laughs) or can tend to be a little bit of an area of difficulty. Excellent. Thank you. I think you both definitely answered the question and well above and beyond. So the next question I have is around markers for all different clients of mental health practitioners. If they suspect their client is autistic or an adhd what should they be looking out for as potential markers to try to give them an idea this is something that they should bring up in their sessions? Mm, yeah, great question. And look, I'm going to start this answer in a place that's going to seem really obvious, but I think it's really important to flag. Look at the diagnostic criteria. So go to the DSM and actually go through what actually are the criteria for these conditions or these neurotypes. And even just devising your own little clinical interview to go through some of these things with clients and just ask them about some of these experiences. I think sometimes as practitioners, particularly, you know, people working in, uh, say, social work or other areas of mental health, it can seem like, oh, I have to have this really fancy um, way of collecting this information or, you know, there's a really particular way that I've got to go about asking this stuff. And not really, actually. You can just ask, hey, do you have this experience? You know, has this ever happened to you? How, what is this like for you, right? So just literally going through the diagnostic criteria and collecting information. And Monique is going to chat a little bit later about some tools and resources. um, And we can even link some of those as well that can actually help with that information collection process. But kind of generally speaking, I think, you know, for autism, just starting with autism, a couple of things, really we want to see a pattern of social processing differences from childhood. Now, obviously, the criteria is very uh, negatively framed and framed in that deficit model, right? And if you do look at the criteria, it will say, you know, so-and-so is demonstrating a deficit in, you know, social communication. Um we can kind of reframe that in our minds and think we want to see a pattern of differences. You know, is there, are they kind of demonstrating that they're processing social information differently right from childhood and being aware as well that that can manifest in a number of different ways. And we also want to see a history again from childhood and also caveat being aware that this can manifest differently, but a history of repetitive behaviors. And these can be cognitive or behavioural. So, an example of repetitive cognitive behaviours are things like some difficulty with flexible thinking. So, you know, once I've kind of got an idea in my head or I'm on a track, I really need to see it through before I kind of switch tracks or special interests. That's an example of a repetitive cognitive behaviour or behavioural. So, stimming, motor movements, engaging in the same activities. And we also very typically see differences in sensory processing as well for people on the spectrum. And so, hypersensitivity to some things and hypo, so undersensitivity to other things. And for ADHD, as we talked about, it's really just about that self-regulation and executive function history. And ADHDers are often quite stimulation-seeking as well. And I think, you know, another thing to look out for, and this isn't diagnostic, but it's commonly co-occurring, for particularly later in life for neurodivergent individuals, We often see a history of mental health issues, autoimmune conditions, um, and sleep issues. So differences in the way that, you know, their sleep cycles, um, history of sleep issues, things like that. And then the last thing just to flag too is that for any neurodivergence, 
we have to have seen it right or there has to be have evidence right from when they were kids. If it's just emerging in adulthood, then it's something else. But the caveat there is that there's a big difference between a trait first occurring in adulthood and then it first becoming a problem or noticeable in adulthood, right? So, you know, for example, ADHD is a really big one where this distinction is really important. Oftentimes, you know, Minnie and I work a lot with uh, women, so oftentimes we will see adult women come through who, as we chatted about before, have these really beautiful report cards, you know, so-and-so was a pleasure to have in the class. What a delight. Love her. Um, But once they're adults and particularly after they've had a kid or, you know, they've maybe leveled up at their, you know, job at work or something has changed about their life, all of these compensatory strategies that they've employed are no longer sufficient or, you know, they're no longer able to kind of get them through or they may be at burnout point, right? So, we actually have seen a very long history of these things occurring. They just haven't presented a problem for that person up until this particular point in their life because of circumstance, environment, external scaffolding, you know, maybe from parents or school or, you know, whatever. A comment that uh, a previous client of mine uh, made going through the diagnostic process was that at each stage of my life where I went to less scaffolding, I noticed a significant stepwise sort of decline in my functioning or my ability to cope with or handle things. So, just being mindful that there's a difference between it's only started to happen now, which is something which is not neurodivergence, is something else, or it's actually only starting to be a problem now or, or evident now. I think that's a really important distinction as well. And I know a lot of women that I have worked with making that leap from year 12 into university where the scaffolding just kind of disappears have really struggled through that time. So um, yeah, I think absolutely. that is information. Yeah. If you're working in mental health services, you actually should be screening for autism and ADHD in the majority of your clients, just as a general screening process. So when a client initially comes to you, part of the developmental history that you take for over their lifespan is you should be looking out for some of the markers that Michelle has talked about. And I actually give all of my clients that come and see me some screening tools. um, And that includes just some brief screening tools, such as the adult ADHD self-report screener, which you can just get for free off the internet, but it's validated and and normed and all of that. And for the autism side of things, there's a website called Embrace Autism, and they have a whole bunch of like legitimate, normed, validated screeners. And for most of my adult clients, I recommend that they do uh, one called the CAT-Q, which actually measures masking and camouflaging behaviours in autism. And that's a great screener. If as a clinician, you want to go a step further and you really want a, a screener that really breaks down each of the criteria and gives examples of those external and internal traits and behaviors in both childhood and adulthood, you can also download something called the DIVA. Um, and a lot of psychiatrists like to use the DIVA when they're going through a diagnostic assessment with clients for ADHD as well. That's a great one. But I think it's our job as mental health clinicians, if you're not specialized in that area, do a developmental history, do a couple of screening tools if things get flagged, 
And then either go and get specialist training for yourself of how to work with that population um, or to like diagnose that population or refer to someone who's a specialist in that area for further diagnosis and assessment. And another resource you can listen to is our podcast as well, the Neurodivergent Woman podcast, because we have a a whole episode, an hour and a half episode in season one on the diagnosis process and, and things to look out for. Do mental health conditions look different or present differently in neurodivergent clients? Should there be different questions clinicians are asking when working with neurodivergent clients? The answer to that is yes and no. Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not simple. So the research at the moment is showing that up to 80% of people who are autistic have comorbid mental health conditions. So comorbid anxiety, depression, there's a high rate of trauma and PTSD as well. There's high rates of co-occurring things like OCD, um, like a lot of the neurodevelopmental conditions will also co-occur um, really commonly as well. But I think for the majority of people working in mental health, particularly private practice, your neurodivergent clients will typically initially present to you unless you're a specialist service they're going to initially present to you with those comorbid conditions. So they'll be presenting with an eating disorder or substance use. They'll be presenting in a forensic setting or with anxiety, depression, or trauma. And it's up to us as mental health clinicians to do that screening and dig in deeper. What's actually causing the anxiety? What's underneath the depression? Is it just anxiety and depression? Is it just substance use and trauma? Or is it actually due to undiagnosed autism and ADHD that the person has this uh, emotional distress that's manifested as anxiety and depression or coping strategies like an eating disorder or substance use disorder or self-harm or suicidal ideation? So, yeah, I'm always looking at the why. And as clinicians, you should be asking questions around like, why are you anxious? Why are you depressed? Is it because you have difficulty socially understanding what's going on for you? Is it because you have difficulty paying attention to things? Yeah, that's what I would be looking at. Do you have anything to add there, Michelle? Um, no, not really. I think I think you covered that really well. And, you know, I love, I love your answer, Monique, of yes and no. I totally agree with that. Um, you know, I think we often see much higher rates of mental health conditions in the neurodivergent population. And a big reason for that, and, and, you know, really a big reason for why neurodivergent individuals can experience more difficulties in their life mm -hmm. is because there's so many more friction points, right, between how the neurodivergent brain wants to operate and feels comfortable and how the environment is set up. I mean, even just thinking about sensory stuff, right? Sensory stuff for um, autistic women and men as well. Sorry, we're just, because we mainly focus on women, um, this is kind of where our brains go. Um, but the sensory side of things is so huge for autistic individuals. And oftentimes just actually uh, doing some sensory intervention alleviates so much anxiety. Um, a lot of times autistic individuals so much of their kind of mental capacity and space is just taken up by feeling chronically overstimulated that 
as you said, Monique, if you're really just sitting with a client and unpacking the why, why is this happening for you? What is driving this? You know, why do you think that is? Um, you can kind of get to a place where you can help them work through it a lot better than if you're just taking it at face value and saying, okay, you feel anxious. Let's do exposure therapy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And we know exposure therapy doesn't really work for autistic individuals. Yeah, I would add to that too, because I tend to specialize in working with complex trauma. And that's initially what people are referred to me to work through. However, when during the screening process, I'm screening for like what is actually going on in addition to trauma. Um, and I always screen for neurodivergence because of that like co-occurrence that's really common. I've found that if we just go straight to treating the trauma or like the mental health symptoms and we don't actually pick up and address and put supports in place for the neurodivergence, whether it's autism or ADHD, the client's actually unlikely to make progress in therapy. And sometimes they can actually get more distressed because what's happening is you're adding up all these like skills, like cognitive behavioral therapy skills, or you're trying to teach them acceptance and commitment therapy skills and mindfulness and all of this. But they're so distressed that they actually can't take that on board. And what I found is you really have to go back to basics with these clients And a lot of my clients, you know, they'll present actually as functioning better than what they actually are. And you can go through and do a bunch of skills and strategies with them, but then find out six months down the track that they don't really understand what you are actually going and doing with them in therapy. And they're not able to actually apply those skills because maybe they don't have the interception ability to even recognize what are they feeling in their body. Or maybe their ADHD, which is untreated and unsupported, means that they're really having difficulty concentrating well enough to do the mindfulness activity that you've given them. So you really have to go back to basics. And the most therapeutic tool that you can use is actually explaining the client's diagnosis to them, getting them properly diagnosed and actually working through supports for the autism or ADHD first And then bringing in, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy for the anxiety or the depression or the trauma, because what you'll find is by supporting the person's neurodiversity, like not changing it, not trying to cure it or fix it, but supporting it and helping the person understand and unpack it, that will alleviate a whole bunch of the anxiety, the low self-worth, the depression. And if you're doing trauma treatment, that will give them a good base to then down the track, go and do some trauma therapy. And with ADHDs as well, not everyone necessarily wants to medicate their ADHD. But when I'm working with people, I'll say, hey, if you've got mild ADHD, you know, maybe putting in place executive functioning supports is going to be enough for you. But if your ADHD is more moderate to severe to the point where you're not actually retaining what we're doing in therapy, you're really not able to, with the executive functioning that you have at the moment, to actually put in place the strategies um, without support that we're doing in therapy, I think you should probably go and get this checked out by a psychiatrist. And sometimes having the medication for the ADHD helps the person's executive functioning uh, so that they can actually engage in therapy and actually use strategies. Because a lot of my ADHD is if they're not diagnosed or medicated, they won't be able to do the therapy homework because they'll simply forget. 
And I think this is a great note for us as clinicians that if you're getting frustrated with the client or you feel like the client is not motivated in therapy or they're being quote unquote resistant because week after week they're not doing the therapy homework, oh, I forgot, you know, actually think about rather than judging the client or punishing for that, think about, well, why? Is there actually an underlying problem? It's not just that the client's lazy or, you know, resistant. Is it actually they don't have the cognitive capacity or the executive functioning capacity to to do what you're asking of them? Is actually what you're asking of them unfair? Feedback from our listeners in our surveys has been around feeling uncertain of best ways to engage with neurodivergent people in their practice. What have you found to be helpful in your practice? What are the things for clinicians to keep in mind when working with neurodivergent people? And what things should clinicians and other mental health practitioners avoid? So first, I would say all the basics of being a clinician, being a therapist still apply when you're working with neurodivergent people. So the biggest thing really is respect. When we're working with people who have disabilities, um, a lot of the times we all have our own inherent biases that it's really important that we self-reflect on and how our, our brain sort of perceives clients with disabilities can sometimes come across in unconscious bias and how we communicate with clients or how we work with clients. So it's really important that we engage in self-reflection. I totally agree. And I think sometimes um, the, the tricky thing when we're working with clients who maybe are not like us in some way, and this can be for lots of reasons, maybe they're a different uh, sexual orientation or a different gender or a different neurotype or a different ethnicity or, you know, whatever the case might be, we can often have an empathy block And that can be really hard to take on as, you know, people in helping professions, because obviously we like to think of ourselves as quite empathetic, um, you know, caring, compassionate people. Uh, But this is just part of being a human being, right? And when we think about empathy, often we actually confuse empathy and sympathy together. So sympathy is when we see someone in distress or we see someone having an experience and we're kind of emotionally moved by that, right? And we're like, oh my God, I feel really sorry for this person or I feel really, um, you know, I feel the feelings that this person is feeling. But empathy is really the ability not just to uh, think about what it would be like for you if you were in that person's situation, but to think about what it's like for that person in their situation. Right. So, you know, we're not just saying, you know, what would it be like for me if I was going through your life? What would it be like for me if I was going through your life in your shoes? Right. And, you know, we can exactly as Minnie said, have this really unconscious bias where we sort of feel like, oh, well, you know, that wouldn't have affected me that way that it's affecting you. And therefore, you just need to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, I'll give you all the, the tools. And if you're not using those tools, and that's because you're choosing not to, because I've had a hard life too. And, you know, I was able to do this or whatever, right? Whereas empathy is really trying to understand what is causing the block for this person? Why is this tricky for this person? You know, absolutely no one wants to be depressed. No one wants to be anxious. No one wants to be in a position where they can't work or their relationships are really hard for them. So, 
taking out that kind of really strong bias that we all have and really getting in the mud with the client, feeling the mud, you know, their mud's different to your mud. Everyone's mud is different to everyone else's mud. So really familiarizing yourself with that person's life experience is really important. What I'd say there as well is um, I think that the biggest thing is to try not to make assumptions about the client and actually just ask them, you know, hey, like, does this strategy work for you? Or how would you prefer for me to communicate with you? How's the room that we're working in? Are the lights, you know, too bright for you? Is the noise, you know, outside the room bothering you? What can I do to make this a more comfortable space for you? How would you prefer for me to explain things to you? Do you work better on the whiteboard with visual aids? Do you want to take photos? Do you need handouts? Like, how can I make this therapeutic process better for you? Um, And being willing, I think, to be curious and open-minded, meet the client where they're at and actually adjust the way that you do things and know that each person is an individual and you may have to adjust things according to each individual client that you have. But yeah, just be open with them. Say, look, you know, I don't 100% you know, I'm not an expert in this field. I'm not an expert in you. I'm going to be asking you what you prefer. And please tell me if something I'm doing doesn't work for you. So, be humble, have that empathy, don't make assumptions and check that the client is understanding um, and engaging with where you're at. I think the biggest thing too, working with neurodivergent clients is they do have an interest-based brain. So, They often have special interests or things that they're really hyper fixated on. So actually talk about their interests, learn about their interests. And that's a gateway to working with the client and developing that rapport and the relationship. I think that's super important. And don't be fake. Okay. A lot of the neurodivergent clients are great bullshit detectors. They'll know if you don't like them. They'll know (laughs) if you're putting on a fake act or playing a neurotypical social game and they'll see right through it and they, they won't like it and they'll call bullshit on it. So to work with neurodivergent people, you actually really have to be your authentic self and, and they'll respect that. Excellent. Thank you. So we have touched a little about the diagnostic process. So the question I wanted to ask was about engaging professionals for a diagnostic process. Who can make the diagnosis and what advice would you provide on how the diagnostic process might actually be navigated? Thinking about what is actually available in regional and remote areas. So going through the diagnostic process, I'll just kind of touch on just generally what the process is and then we'll talk a little bit about how that might look in regional and remote areas. So typically the first port of call for most people is their GPs. And this is really why it's so essential if you're a GP to have knowledge in, you know, generalist knowledge in all of these things so that you can kind of pick up, oh, yeah, you're showing signs of this versus that. Um, So most people start with their GPs um, and then they can get a referral to a psychiatrist. So you can go straight to a psychiatrist from the GP. And a psychiatrist is able to diagnose autism and ADHD and, you know, a bunch of other things as well. And the benefit of going to a psychiatrist is really if you are wanting to get medication, particularly if you're an ADHD or wanting to explore that and you're really wanting to trial medication, you're going to have to go to a psychiatrist anyway. 
basically, because psychologists are not able to prescribe medication. So some people go straight down that psychiatrist route. The tricky thing with that is it can take quite a while to get in to see a psychiatrist. And also if you're going straight to a psychiatrist without first going through a diagnostic process with a neuropsych or a clinical psych, which we'll talk about in a second, you really need to make sure you're seeing a specialist psychiatrist because otherwise, if they're not specialists in ADHD, again, particularly if you're a woman going through that process, then you might be waiting months and months, go see the psychiatrist. They say, no, you have a job and are married. So no. <laughs> and then you've kind of wasted all that time. So needs to be a specialist if you're going, and this is true for, for whoever you go to, but you know that first person that you see should be a specialist. The other route that you can go through is if you go to GP, you can get a referral to see either a clinical psychologist or a clinical neuropsychologist. Now, you don't need a referral from your GP to see a psychologist, but you do need it if you're wanting to claim through Medicare. Okay, so if you've got private health or you're wanting to just pay out of pocket, then you don't need the referral. Having a lot of people think that having a referral speeds up the process, like means that you're going to get in faster. It doesn't. It does not. You still go on the exact same wait list. The only thing that having a referral does is it gives you a rebate if you're wanting to claim through Medicare. So clinical psychologist is able to diagnose autism and they can go through the uh, process of ADHD and they can make the kind of suggestion, yes, you're, you're kind of meeting all the criteria. There's a kind of back and forth and a little bit of an unknown around whether clinical psychologists can actually formally diagnose ADHD, but they can basically tell you if you have ADHD or not. And if you've got kind of a uh, report and all the collection of the information from your clinical site, then if you're wanting to trial medication, what you can then do is basically go to any old psychiatrist, which means that you'll be able to get in quicker because you've already been through kind of the diagnostic process and they're just the ones, you know, ticking it off and giving you the medication. A clinical neuropsychologist, which is um, my profession, um, they can diagnose autism and make a formal diagnosis of ADHD, but again, can't give medication. So same thing, you know, you still have to go and see a psychiatrist if you're wanting to trial medication. A lot of people have, uh, you know, a bit of a question around, you know, the different processes of diagnosing ADHD, you know, between say a clinical psych versus a neuropsych versus a psychiatrist. ADHD is a behavioral diagnosis, meaning that it's a list of traits and symptoms, and you basically have to show that you're meeting those criteria. There's several things that kind of go into that, but essentially that's it. The value out of a neuropsych is neuropsychs can also do cognitive testing, which basically helps to unpack your cognitive profile and gives a little bit more of a deeper understanding about, you know, where some of these things are sitting at a cognitive level, but you don't need that to, to have a diagnosis. So that's kind of the diagnostic process there. When it comes to the reality of that in a, a rural or remote setting, obviously availability is much more limited. But the benefit, again, of, you know, the last couple of years and COVID and, and all of that has been that telehealth has become much more accessible and much more utilised by people of all kind of professions, um, you know, in, in that kind of allied health and, and medical uh, space. So, 
what I would really suggest, if you're a GP clinic in a rural or remote area, developing a database almost of telehealth specialists and clinicians around the country, because if you kind of go through the telehealth process, it doesn't really matter where that person is, right? They could be interstate. Right. So the the good news with autism uh, assessments is they can be done completely online. ADHD um, screening and going through kind of all the criteria can also be done totally online. You can't do neuropsych, full neuropsych testing online. And the reason for that is because there's physical materials that need to be used and it has to be an in-person thing. But all the rest of it, you can do via telehealth. So if you're, even if you're a, a patient or a client really asking, or if you're advocating on behalf of a patient or a client of yours, um, asking different kind of practices, whether they do telehealth and then going down that route can be helpful. There are actually traveling neuropsychologists as well. So if you live in a rural or remote area and you get enough people who want, you know, an assessment, you can actually ask a neuropsychologist that does do travel to come out and just assess a whole bunch of people at once and stay in the town that you live in. And that's a good option as well. So how would you recommend that rural and remote practitioners locate those traveling neuropsychologists? There are ones in most of the major like metropolitan cities. Um, and I would just recommend going through and Googling like neuropsychologists traveling. A lot of them will even travel interstate and go all around Australia because that's part of, I guess, how they deliver their services. I think that's really valuable. Yeah, and it, it, it can be quite a difficult thing to locate and it's usually just kind of a word of mouth thing as well. So if you, in the you know city that you live in or the city that you're close to, if you know of a neuropsych, I would suggest contacting them personally and then asking them who within their kind of network they know that might do that because uh yeah, it, it does happen, but in my kind of experience, that they tend to be quite few and far between, but particularly for quite remote regions, um, so not just rural but remote, that's where you often get, as Monique said, you know, people kind of going out and offering that service in those remote areas. Excellent. I think that's a very valuable bit of information for all of our listeners. So we're nearing the end of our discussion today, and we've covered a lot in this conversation. I'm wondering if people listening to this today took away one thing to improve their communication with specifically neurodivergent clients and work to implement it into their practice tomorrow, what would you hope that that would be? I would say have your clinical hat on, have your clinical judgment, but listen to your clients. Listen to your clients to what they're saying and believe them. The amount of people that I have that come to me and go, oh, like, I think I may be autistic. I think I may have ADHD. And then we actually go through all the screening, all of the diagnostic process. The majority of those people, it's actually turned out to be correct. Okay. There has been a minority of people when no, there was something else going on. But I'm a firm believer in our clients, other experts on themselves. They know themselves the best. We are here to listen and we're here to provide information and guidance. But at the end of the day, they are the experts on themselves. Yeah, for sure. And I'd probably just add there as well. You know, I think that 
there's sometimes this feeling as uh, practitioners and professionals that we have to have all the answers and that people have come to us to have their questions answered, which is true to a degree. But having that collaborative um, kind of framework when you're working with clients and, and patients is really important too. And something that has been really useful for me in my clinical practice is a phrase that I actually learned uh, during my master's placement, which is if someone is coming to you and saying, hey, I'm having these experiences, right? I am having this internal experience or I'm behaving in this way or you know, X, Y, Z is happening for me. There's a tendency sometimes as practitioners to immediately jump to the hypothesis, right? Why do we think that's going on? And and that's really important. That's part of, you know, good clinical training. Um, But the issue with that can be if our hypothesis is different to what our client's hypothesis is, you know, they're saying, oh, I'm having all these things and this is the reason that I think. And we're thinking, "Mm, no, I think it's this other reason, we can be quite invalidating of the experience that they're having, right? So, for instance, if a client's saying, um, I can't concentrate on anything and I'm finding it really hard to, um, you know, finish my uni degree, right? And then they say, and I think that's because I'm an adhd Say we kind of go through the whole process and we think, no, you're you're actually not ADHD, an adhd And we say, you're not ADHD. What the client hears is, you're telling me that I'm not having the experience that I'm having. You're telling me that I actually can concentrate, that I'm not having any issues with attention, that, um, you know, I'm just lazy as, you know, that's why I can't get through my uni degree. So what I really like to do in those situations where our hypothesis is different to the client's hypothesis is start by saying, okay, you absolutely are really struggling with your attention you're having a really hard time sustaining relationships. You're having, you know, whatever, validating what their experience is. Through all of this data that we've collected and through this whole process, we can be fairly confident that the reason for that is not that you're on the spectrum or it's not that you're an ADHD or, you know, whatever. So let's try and work out what is causing that because there's no doubt that you're having this experience, but we just need to work out together what's driving that right? So, being really um, mindful of the importance of validating your patient or your client's experience, uh, even if your hypothesis is different to theirs, is really important, I think. Excellent. Thank you. I think that's some really great advice for our clinicians to go forward with. No problem. It was so lovely to talk with you, Charlie. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.